Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. We come now to the concluding portion of Romans chapter 8, arguably the greatest chapter in the New Testament that deals with the application of the spiritual life. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he has expounded meticulously, systematically, very intentionally how a person can come into God, how God by the Spirit comes into a person, and how now in chapter 8 we can live this spiritual life. And in verse 31, all the way through verse 39, Paul concludes his marvelous exposition on the spiritual life by starting off and saying that if God is for us, who can be against us? This is such a marvelous statement. In fact, I personally did not grow up in the Christian faith. Um, I did not grow up knowing the scriptures and when I met the Lord at age 17 the first time really that I began to read the Bible somehow I flipped to Romans chapter 8 and somehow my eyes came across verse 31 and that was actually the very first verse in all of the Bible that grabbed me and was seared deep within the core of my being. and I've lived with this confidence that God is for me. This very thing that Paul describes here to the Roman believers back in the first century, I touched it. God is, is, is with me. God is in me. God is for me. And I have lived my life in the Lord Jesus Christ ever since with just this, this knowing, this confidence, this conviction, this surety that I'm going to be okay. And Paul explains to the Roman believers here, and of course, he's about to list now a lot of things that seemingly can come against them. But he speaks with such confidence because he himself experienced God being for him. And as the recipients in Rome perhaps listens to this letter, hopefully that confidence exuded from the letter into them. And it has exuded throughout the centuries, even into me. And I hope wherever you are in this world, that this strange mystical confidence that the apostle had, that he wanted the Roman believers to have, that you and I in the modern age would also have this knowing God is for us. Now we ask the question, what made Paul so sure, so confident of this God being for him and not against him? How did he arrive at this strange conviction and this resolve, you might say, this settledness within his being that it's going to be okay? And then, of course, he lists many, many things that's going to come against him. One of them is... We're going to be led potentially like a lamb to the slaughter. 
How did Paul come about this internal knowing that things are going to be okay? Beloved, it has to do with love. Paul concludes his big theological treatise on the salvation of man and how man is a sinner and how Christ died and how by faith a man can come into Christ and Christ comes into a man by the Spirit. He concludes this whole dissertation by emphasizing love. And I want to submit to you, what created the boldness in this man? What created the persuasion, the confidence in this man? It's the love of God. Now, theologians, historians, and contextual scriptural scholars, they hardly ever view the apostle as the apostle of love. Most people interpret him just as the church planter, as the, the gospel speaker, as the teacher, as the, the one who reveals the things of God, and he's the one fixating on justification and sin. But beloved... I want to tell you, more than any of that, Paul was a man loved by God and in turn, a lover of God. Beloved, let me give you a couple of statistics. And these are general, broad statistics um, from the 13 letters, the known letters of the Apostle Paul. And some of the key words in those letters. And I want to start off by looking at the word sin. In all of the letters of Paul, no doubt he talks about sin. But if you add up sin references, it only comes to 58. We might also say the apostle is the apostle of righteousness. And he spoke a lot about how to be right with God. In all of his 13 letters, the word righteousness appears about 55 times. What about the word just and justification and derivatives thereof? In all 13 letters, give or take, 20 references to this theological issue of justification. Well, things climb a little bit with the word flesh. In all of Paul's letters, he does speak about the flesh. And by that, he means the fallen, carnal, natural man. And flesh is referenced in 13 letters some 74 times. What about the word truth? We may say that Paul is a theologian of truth. Well, that word truth with its many cognates are referenced approximately 42-ish times in his 13 letters. Well, what about the word life? You know, Paul is the one who spoke so much about the life of God. And it's, it's a fantastic, magnanimous theme in the writings of Paul. Christ is my life. In him I live and move. Well, just the word life appears some 60 or so times in the 13 letters of Paul. What about the word hope? Paul definitely is the apostle of hope, we might say. But the, the word hope in and of itself appears only some 51 times. What about the word grace? We know that Paul spoke a ton on grace. Grace appears approximately 86 times in the 13 letters. And now, what about the word love? 
something we do not readily attribute to the Apostle Paul. In the 13 letters, love is mentioned, give or take, some 96 times. The Apostle Paul spoke more on the love of God and love for each other than he did on sin or righteousness or justification or life or hope or the flesh or the truth. There's only one word in all of Paul's writings that trumps the word love, and it's the word faith. For the Apostle Paul, the way to connect with any dynamic in God of righteousness or justification or sanctification or holiness or whatever it would be, it would be the word faith. And I submit to you, the only way that we even connect to the love of God is through this issue of faith. And there you have it. In Paul's writings, love and faith are mentioned more than any other spiritual dynamic. Which brings me now to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. How can the man be so sure, so confident? It was because he was established in faith and he experienced tangibly the love of God. And the man also had love for God. After all, love is the goal and the commandment of the entire Old Testament corpus of writings. It's the issue of issues in the Old Testament. And also in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus consistently stressed the issue of love, particularly in John's Gospel. In chapter 15, verse 9, our Lord said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain, therefore, abide, therefore, in my love. And it's as though love is the greatest commandment, and the Apostle Paul got it. Now, we will never credit him hardly for that. We would say, yeah, 1 Corinthians 13, that beautiful poem on love, yeah, that was beautiful. But, beloved, the Apostle wrote consistently regarding the love of God. And it was the bedrock of his interaction with God. It was the bedrock of his relationship with God. And wherever you are in your relationship with God, I submit to you, if love is not the bedrock of your walk with God, the way it was for the Apostle Paul, then you are not going to experience this conviction in you that God is for you and this persuasion that nothing can separate you from the love of God. This issue of love is perhaps the most overlooked issue in our walk with God. We are more obsessed with sin and condemnation and how can I be righteous and how can I be just than we are with the love of God. Often we are more obsessive about doctrine and truth and understanding and revelation and enlightenment than we are 
with the love of God. Often we're more obsessed with signs and wonders and manifestation than we are the love of God. Often we're more concerned about building institutions and and forming organizations and coming and going than we are just the love of God. And often we're more obsessed with holiness and, and living squeaky clean lives than we are with the love of God. You see, there are a lot of Marthas in the world that rightfully so serve God. But there are very few Marys who just cultivate and steward love for God. And this is perhaps the greatest thing that we have overlooked in the Apostle Paul. We've just made him a church builder and a church planter and a gospel preacher. But this is the man, like Mary, in the love of God. In the letter to the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation that Christ had John write, Christ commends the Ephesian church there in Revelation chapter 2 for all of the many good things that they have done, all of the many works that they have accomplished. But the Lord himself indicted the Ephesian community. And he says in the book of Revelation chapter 2, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. You've lost your deepest, dearest, and best and highest love for God. It's as though that love has been dissipated and it has been given to the things of maybe ministry or accomplishments or fill in the blank. And it's kind of ironic because Paul wrote extensively on the love of God to the Ephesian church in his letter to the Ephesians. And it's kind of interesting that the Lord in Revelation 2 through John would write another letter to the Ephesian church, accusing them of falling out of the love of God. Beloved, are you and I like the Ephesian Christians that fall out of love with God? And if you have fallen out of love with God and you are doubting the love of God, then Romans chapter 8 verse 31 through 39 is for you. Like it seeped into me as a teenager at age 17 and just arrested me. I pray that these verses would arrest you and that you would stand upon this rock of confidence in the love of God the same way the Apostle Paul did when he penned these words. I want to take a minute and just read these verses for you and perhaps highlight a few things along the way. Verse 31. What then shall we say to all of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's the same way in Psalm 118, verse 6. The psalmist says that the Lord is on my side, and I will not fear. What can man do unto me? It's as though Paul reiterates that confidence In the foregoing chapters, there are so many items mentioned how God is for us. And then in verse 32, 33, 34 and onwards, there are additional items listed that expounds this stability that the apostle had in God. But first, from Romans chapter 1, Paul says that 
God has revealed himself. And through creation, we should be able to know God. That is, God is for us. God wants us to find him. God wants us to know him in chapter 1, verse 20. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. God is for us, and He's for us in His kindness, in His benevolence, in His goodness. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says that we are freely justified by the grace of God through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. God is for us to freely justify us in grace because of the work of Christ. God is not against us. God is for us, he says in chapter 3. In chapter 4, in verse 8, he says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall by no means account sin. That is, God is for you. God does not want to hold sin against you. He wants to be benevolent and forgiving and and wash, cleanse you from sin. God is not against you. God is for you. In chapter 5, there are so many references to God being for us. But it starts off there in uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. He says, we've been justified and now we have peace with God. And we have access, verse 2, to God. We, we, can, we can come now to God. God is for us. He's not blocking the way. He's not blocking the, the, the presence and the grace of God. We can come to the throne of grace. He's for us. In chapter 6, God is for us in the sense that we have been buried with Christ in baptism. And we've been raised with Christ in resurrection so that we can walk in newness of life. God is for us to raise us from the dead and give us life abundantly and cause us now to live and walk in this newness of life. In chapter 7, God is for us in that He allowed us to die in Christ to the law so that we can be married to Christ God is for our union with Christ. God is not for our union with the law, in verse 4 of chapter 7. God is for us, and He wants us in Christ. We're no longer accountable and yoked and in covenant with the law. We're in covenant with Christ. And then in chapter 8, there are so many items listed how God is actually for us. But particularly in verse 4, He says, The righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us. And that righteous requirement of the law, that standard of the law, that high peak to which the entire law climbs, that summit, is the love of God. God's love for us and our love for Him. So Paul then rightfully looks back upon all of these theological thoughts that he just wrote down and he adds it all up and he says, there's no way we can lose. God is for us. But then in verse 32 and onwards, he begins to explain how God is additionally for us also. In verse 32, he gave us his son. In verse 32 again, how shall he not freely give us all things? 
See, God is for you in the giving of the Son. And since He gave the highest gift that God possibly can give, any and everything else will be easy. God is for you. In verse 33, He reiterates again that nobody can condemn us. Nobody can bring a charge against God's elect. Why? Because we have been justified. God is for us. He acquitted us. In verse 34, he says that Christ is at the right hand of God. And what he's doing at the right hand of God is interceding for us. He is pleading our case. God is for us. Christ is for us. And this is Paul's conviction. Nothing is going to separate you from God's love, which is towards you in Christ Jesus. And then in verses 35 all the way to verse 39, Paul attempts to list any possible thing that can sort of be against us, that can shut us down, that can shake us up and remove us from Christ. And in a little bit of a taunting kind of a way, um, he mocks and taunts all of these difficulties, difficulties like tribulation. Can you really separate us from God? Can distress, can persecution, can famine or nakedness or peril or sword, even if we're led like a lamb to the slaughter? Do you suppose that any of these negative things can separate us from the love of God? And then he gets to verses 38 and he says, can death separate me? Can life separate me? Can angels or principalities, things present, things to come, or any power or height or depth? Is there any creature? And in a taunting kind of a way, Paul is trying to say, there's just nothing in the known universe that can separate us from the love of God, which is for us in Christ Jesus. Careful reading of verse 35, however, will show that all of these many things that come against us is an attempt to shut down our love for God. In verse 37, Paul states that we are more than conquerors through God who loved us, God's love towards us. The same in verse 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God. The implication here is God's love towards mankind. And that is just a given. From God's angle, there is just nothing that can separate His love towards us. Even John's gospel reiterates this issue of love over and over again. And especially in the most beautiful verse, for God so loved. See, there's no amount of sin or height or depth or anything, Satan himself, that can remove God's love towards us. Verse 35, however, states, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
We know that Christ loves us. But beloved, this relationship with God and in Christ is also a reciprocal love from me towards Him. See, I in turn love God because God first loved me. That is, God flowed love into my being, as Paul would state there in Romans chapter 5, that the love of God has been baptized and saturated into our being. And now we get to, from that reservoir within, love God in turn. This is the crown, pinnacle of all of God's interaction with man, is that we would love Him. In verse 35, we see that it's not all of these things that remove God's love towards us, but in a way it removes our love towards Him. That is, that reciprocal outpouring of love back to God, these things stunt it, it suppresses it, and it derails it. For instance, tribulation. How many of you have fallen prey to tribulation where you are afflicted and you are in distress and you are oppressed and you're miserable and and circumstantially uh, things are just tough? No doubt it causes us to doubt God's love towards us. But is it not true that in a way sometimes it just throws water on your fire of love towards God? And like the Ephesian community there in the book of Revelation, you lose your first love, your best love, your most intense love, your most consecrated, devoted love to God because of tribulation. And Paul is writing here that tribulation tried to do that for him, but it, it, it couldn't. And he says to the Romans, it may attempt to do that for you, but it cannot and it should not. Then Paul goes on to say, do you suppose that uh, anguish or distress? And it's, it's another way of saying tribulation. Um, it's just a more intense way of being in difficulty. And it seems as though there is no escape. So there's anxiety. We might say you're between a rock and a hard place. You are in a, in, in a way that seems constricted and you're blocked in from every side. It doesn't appear like there's a breakthrough here or a, an escape here or an open door or window or light at the end of the tunnel. And so there's anxiety. How is this going to work together for good? Paul experienced such an onslaught of tribulation and distress and anxiety. He even writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. He says, We are pressed on every side, but we are not constricted. We're unable to find a way out of this, but not utterly without a way out. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are cast down, but not destroyed. We are always bearing about in our body the putting to death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. And we who are alive are always being delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is operating in us, but life is operating 
in you. Paul goes on there to explain just all of the the pressure that he and his co-workers have experienced. And he says, in a way, to the Romans, you will experience this pressure, but do not let it remove your love towards Christ. Paul goes on to say, do we suppose that persecution can remove us from Christ? And it's this pressure again, it's this prosecution, this accusation, and it's often people with intentional malice and ill will towards the believers. We know that it happened in the first century, especially the second and third centuries, when the Christian church went through unimaginable torture. And you can read about it to some extent in Fox's book of martyrs. Paul says, I am confident that God is for me and that persecution cannot remove me from loving God. Paul taunts famine as incapable of removing him from loving God. Today I do not have a full meal. I I, I don't have comfort today. I'm struggling a little bit today. Should I now stop loving God because I I don't have a three-course meal? Paul says, no, this will not remove me from reciprocating God's love. And by the way, none of this is an interpretation of God's love towards me. Paul taunts nakedness and clothing, the fact that I may not be up to date with the latest fad and fashion of the culture. Is it an indication of God's love towards me? And should it remove me from loving God? In a way, Paul says, no. Paul says, what about danger and peril? We know that through all of Paul's missionary journeys, he was constantly in danger, crossing mountains, sleeping out in the field at night, crossing rivers, walking on paths where there were potentially robbers, um, being persecuted by his Jewish kinsmen, misunderstood by the magistrates of every city. No matter where Paul went, he was in some kind of peril. And he's saying, can this remove God's love towards me? Not really. Can this remove my love towards him? No. And then Paul taunts the sword of a Roman soldier and the government. Can it remove God's love towards me? Can it remove my love towards God? Obviously, the answer for Paul is no. And he wants the answer for the Roman believers to be no. And he wants that same answer to be no to you and I here in the modern age. Paul says, even if we are led like a lamb to the slaughter, and it is the end of my life, it is not an interpretation of God's love for me, and it does not sway my love for God. Can I ask you, what has come against you to remove your devotion, your consecration, your adoration of God. In our days, we have seen that when circumstances don't work out for people, they stop loving God. 
When people get sick, they stop loving God. When the government turns on them, they stop loving God. When friends don't like them on social media, they stop loving God. When a pandemic comes, they stop loving God. It seems as though we are so fickle compared to the first century believers in our love for the Lord. And Paul had a confidence that I believe we can have likewise. We do not have to be derailed in our devotion to the Lord. We don't have to let friends and the culture and the government and politics remove our love towards God. Actually, in verse 37, Paul says that amidst all of these things, we more than conquer through him who loved us. In other words, as the negative intensifies and it seems as though there is no evidence of the love of God towards us and there is such an onslaught against you to be removed from loving God, Paul says, actually, this causes us to triumph in the love of God. This makes the love of God more real to me than ever before. And this makes my heart explode in love towards Him. And you can see how Paul is taunting all of these negative things that so depresses us in this day and age. I have met more believers who are so disillusioned about the love of God because they think circumstances dictate the love of God. And it's a very archaic way of thinking. It's even a Jewish way of thinking. You see, back in the day, the Jewish mindset was circumstances interprets God. And if the circumstance is favorable and we are victorious, then yeah, God is for us. And if something is negative, we do not have breakthrough, I may get sick, somebody dies... God then is against us. And that's how the Jews then also stumbled over Christ being on a cross. Because in the Jewish mind, a person who is on a tree is cursed. And surely you deserved to be on that tree uh, under the curse of God. You did some crime. You did some blasphemy. You did some sin. And so that's why the Jews just, they struggled to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because he's cursed of God. And they saw death as an interpretation that you grieved God, you sinned, and now he's getting even with you. And Paul is taunting all of this. Really? Really, really, really? Can, can death really separate you from the love of God? And we understand the gospel that Christ on the cross is actually the display of the love of God. And Paul taunts death. Really? Somebody dying? Even you dying? Even Christ dying? Is that really a sign of God not loving you? And should it be an impetus for you not loving Him? In verse 38 he says, Can life separate you from the love of God? This life so unpredictable, so uncontrollable, this life with its ups and its downs. He asks, can angels, these demons and devils that are 
contrary to the people of God, constantly on an assignment to steal, kill, and destroy, attacking the very people of God. Paul taunts angels. Can you really separate me from the love of God and my reciprocal love towards him? Come on, Paul might even say. He goes on to speak about principalities. That is, uh, magistrates, civil government, can the authority figures of this world, be they favorable towards me or unfavorable towards me, can they really separate and reinterpret God's love towards me and me from God's love? We know that in China, the communist government is against people serving Jesus Christ in a free way. And yet there is an explosion of the lovers of God. And throughout church history, when there is a suppression of God, there's always an explosion of the love of God. That happened in the second and third centuries when the Roman emperors unleashed persecution upon persecution uh, on the believers. And yet they exploded in numbers. Can an anti-God government really separate people from the love of God? Paul goes on to say, what about things present or things to come? The current state of affairs or even the, the coming of tribulation or the coming of persecution and the future. Nothing now or then. Whatever the condition, whatever the intensity, it, it, it just can't. Paul taunts powers as incapable of removing us from the love of God. I'm not entirely sure what Paul meant here by powers, but maybe the, the power of speech, uh, the power of deception, uh, lying signs and wonders of falsehood and false teaching, and maybe the powers of spiritual beings or dignitaries. But be it as it may, it appears that in the universe there are layers and tiers of power, maybe a political power, maybe a kind of an evil power, powers in general. You seem so strong. You seem so capable. You cannot stop God's love towards me. You cannot stop my love towards God. Paul goes on to say height or depth. Maybe by height he refers to uh, things in the heavens. By depth, maybe he might refer to things in the underworld, the realm of the dead. And then Paul wraps it up by saying, it doesn't matter what kind of a creature you are, a creature of time and space, a creature of the eternal realms, are you a human, a lion? Are you some angelic being? It doesn't matter what kind of a creature you are, visible or invisible. You cannot separate me from the love of God that is towards me in Christ Jesus. And you cannot separate my heart loving him. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in my heart. And it has been shed abroad in my heart, some translations would say. In other words, I am saturated with the love of God. I love Him regardless of all of the negative things. 
And Paul proves yet again that he's more than a theologian. He's more than an interpreter of the gospel and an explainer of righteousness. Bottom line, Paul was a lover of God. Beloved, he wanted the Romans to be lovers of God. And he wants you and I to be lovers of God. Because in all of the universe, this is the high peak of God's interaction with man. He loves us and we get to love him. Beloved, God is for you. Therefore, let nothing be against you in your devotion, your worship, your adoration towards him. Take that alabaster flask and break it on your Lord and love him with your hair. Love him with your tears. Love him with all of your might and power and strength. Love him with your mind. Love him with your emotion. Love him with your obedience. Love him. Love him. Because he first loved you.